0: Lord, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for um, the myriad things going on around us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us now to still our hearts, um, to give you thanks for those things, but to be present right where we are, that we might hear from your word and that we might respond in a way that honors you first and foremost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the second Sunday in the season of Advent. Um, As you know, Advent is a season of preparing for the coming of Jesus. We do this in two ways. We remember him coming as a baby and we anticipate his second coming as the victorious king. We set aside time to intentionally ask Jesus also to come into our lives here today. That he might shine his light in the areas where there is darkness. Um, One way we do this as a church is by reflecting on the passages from the Old and the New Testament that speak of his comings. The particular passages that we will read this morning from Matthew 3 and Isaiah 11 are going to be read by millions of Christians around the world. Some have already had their Sunday service, so they've already heard them read. Some will in the future. But what a beautiful thing for us to connect with believers across the world reading these passages of hope. If that doesn't get you fired up, I don't know what will. But before we jump into the actual text, we need to be honest about something. We all have favorites. Favorites. I'm not talking about kids, not talking about pets, I'm not even talking about breakfast taco spots. I'm talking about books of the Bible. Perhaps it's one of the Gospels. You know, John always called himself the the disciple whom Jesus loved, so maybe uh, he's the author whom you love. Um, Maybe it's Philippians or Exodus or the book of Psalms. And even if we believe that every book of the Bible is the inspired word of God, there are some that just speak to us more than others, right? Now, if we have favorites, we probably also have least favorites. On the count of three, I want you to say your least favorite book of the Bible. One, just, just kidding. <laughs> I wouldn't make you do that in church. Don't worry. (laughs) But I'll tell you one of mine. Jeremiah, until about four years ago, was one of my least favorite books of the Bible. It all started when I was 16. I was reading through the Bible cover to cover, and I arrived at this book. I knew exactly one verse from the book of Jeremiah, and I bet you know which one. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. So when I got to chapter one, I was excited. I thought, man, this is going to be such an uplifting story. So very positive. If you've taken time to read through the book, you'll find that that was the high point. The rest is pretty gloomy and frankly, depressing. Unfortunately for the prophet Jeremiah, the phrase, don't shoot the messenger, hadn't yet become popular. (laughs) He finds himself in conflict as he gives warnings to the king and to the people. He finds himself imprisoned. He finds his message ignored. And the coming judgment of God arrives and the people are unprepared. I think if we're honest, we'll admit that we don't like reading passages about God's judgment. I mean, we like thinking about restoration and mercy, but not so much about standing before the judge. Today's passages from Matthew 3 and Isaiah 11 contain visions of God's judgment and restoration. I'd like to borrow the metaphor that Britt shared last week about a pair of 3D glasses. Saying we need to put on 3D glasses like the old school red and blue 3D glasses to see properly the coming of Christ. And another set of lenses that we need are the lenses of justice and peace. Um, If you had a chance to pick up one of the Advent devotionals from Christianity Today, you may have read this in the introduction. It says, Many of Advent's Old Testament passages prompt us to reflect on the personal peace we can experience with God and to envision the ultimate peace the promised one will one day bring. But Scripture pushes us beyond our tendency towards a sentimentalized vision of peace. Challenging us to see that the peace Christ brings is robust and comprehensive. This peace not, comes not only through Jesus' love, but through His mighty power. For His peace is tied directly with His justice. And the peace he brings was bought at a price. With that preface, let's now look at our passages, asking God to help us see clearly. We're gonna read um, Matthew 3 and Isaiah 11 side by side, excerpts of each. And, and what we'll find is that they all have three, they both have three parts an introduction, a warning. And a promise. Let's take a look first at Matthew 3. It begins like this. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one crawling out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight. Paths for him. Isaiah 11 begins this way A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. John the Baptist and Isaiah are speaking of the same thing. Though separated by centuries, they are talking of the coming of Jesus. We learned from uh, the Gospel of Luke, if you've read the early couple chapters, that preparing the people for Jesus was John's primary calling. That's why God brought him to the elderly Elizabeth and Zechariah. That's why he had a miraculous birth some 30 years before he made that proclamation, prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah's reference to a shoot coming out from the stump of Jesse reminded God's people of a promise he had made them, that he had made to David and by extension David's father Jesse that from their family would come the Messiah, the anointed one who would honor God and restore Israel. The image of Jesse's family being like a stump (laughs) speaks to a radical reversal that the coming of the Messiah would bring. Jesus is Jesse's descendant who breaks through the decaying stump with new life and new hope. Jesus is the Lord who John admonishes his hearers to prepare for. So after introducing Jesus, they give us a warning. Let's pick back up in verse 5 of Matthew 3. It says, People went out to him from Jerusalem, and all Judea, In the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance? And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Whew. John the Baptist sounds like an old school Baptist preacher. I guess that makes sense. Listen now to Isaiah's warning. He he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions to the poor. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. If we consider these warnings carefully, we'll notice that they have something in common. They both tell us that when Jesus comes, we can't fake it. He actually sees things as they really are. This was John's warning to the Pharisees. They look really pious. They look like people who are seeking after God, like the kind of people who don't have to prepare because they already are. But in reality, they're self-assured. They're proud. Later on, Jesus will criticize the Pharisees for following some of the law, but neglecting the weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So too, Isaiah asserts that the coming one will judge not by appearance, not by the rumors that the people tell amongst themselves. Instead, he will judge fairly and equitably, seeing the full and true picture. Isaiah reminds us that this is good news, especially for the poor, and for the powerless. Those who both then and now have a tendency to be overlooked and mistreated. But they also warn us that those who are wicked, those who don't produce good fruit, will face the wrath of the Lord. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. These are sobering words. We would do well not to exempt ourselves quickly, not to gloss over them without considering where and how this may in fact be true of us. After giving this warning, both of them conclude with a promise. Matthew 3.10, John says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, Jesus is coming not to simply wash the exterior, but to transform us from the inside out. What a relief, <laughs> right? If we, if we take stock of the fruit of our lives, we know how badly we need this, how badly we need the spirit of God to come produce fruit in us, which we could never produce ourselves. This is very, very good news. let Listen, now... The promise from Isaiah, one that I'm sure you've heard before. Um, It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down, their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Isaiah's promise of a world without destruction and violence almost sounds too good to be true. But this is our hope. This is what we long for. This is why Jesus came. And in his first coming, we see a glimpse of this world as he heals the sick, as he spends time with those who are outcast and rejected, as he lays his life down without a fight for the sake of all those who would trust in him. This too is why Jesus comes into our lives and into our hearts with the purpose of transforming us that the world might get a glimpse of this vision. Our care for the widows, orphans, Foreigners, impoverished, incarcerated, hungry, thirsty, sick, and marginalized should give the world a picture of this vision. Our conduct towards our enemies and those who get under our skin should do the same. But we live in the already and not yet. We live in the in-between Christ's first coming and second. And our hope for this vision will only be made real when Christ himself returns to make all things right. Matthew's passage ends with one final warning. Thought you were done. Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor. Gathering his wheat in the barn and burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. How do we respond to passages like this? We, we respond by pressing in. Not by retreating. Not by burying our heads in the sand. Not by pretending we haven't heard We respond by doing the things of Advent. Historically, this has been a penitential season, a season when we confess our sins to God, where we ask him for his mercy, a season where we show mercy to those in need. That's our invitation this morning. But if we're gonna do that, we have to overcome two barriers that I believe are common among us. Ironically, I was reminded of these barriers this last month as I read back through the book of Jeremiah. We cannot properly repent if we take God's grace for granted. That's the first barrier. We cannot properly repent if we believe falsely that we are too far gone. That's the second Throughout the story of Jeremiah, he warns the people to stop worshiping idols, to stop putting their trust in nations that do not fear God, but to trust in God alone. And he says, if you don't, you will go into exile and the city will be destroyed. But again and again, the people respond with something like this. That'll never happen to us. We're God's people. He'd never let our enemies overtake us. This was the Pharisees' problem too, right? John the Baptist addresses this head on when he says, and don't say among yourselves, we're Abraham's children. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children from Abraham. Believing that God's grace is somehow owed to us. Believing that we'll pass the final exam without studying prevents us from properly preparing for the coming of the king. Where's the Lord inviting you to take honest assessment, honest stock of the fruit in your life? How might the season of Advent, a season marked by fasting and repenting, help you to discover and just to give to God in his mercy, to take away these disordered affections, these disordered desires, these false visions of hope that we cling to, but which are breaking us and our world down? The other thing that you see in the book of Jeremiah is that when the walls come crashing down and the people look at the smoldering rubble, their hope is lost. They believe that they are too far gone, that they are now removed from God's promises, that they are irredeemable. Perhaps that's more like where you feel you are this morning. Maybe you don't need me to convince you that the coming of the judge is a frightening, awesome reality. Perhaps you know, like me, (laughs) that there are many things in your life that won't, won't look so favorable when you're standing before the judge. You may be tempted to despair. You may be tempted to go headlong into the things which you know only bring death. But again and again, the Bible reminds us that broken walls are no match for God's restorative power. That God can use broken families like Jesse's reduced to a mere stump to bring forth glorious new life and glorious new hope. we're reminded again and again that God's mercy is available to all those who cry out, I believe, Jesus, help my unbelief. It's not too late to ask God for a new start. If you desire it, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire forgiving your sins, and giving you new strength to amend your life in accord with this vision of glory. This is only possible by God's grace, made available to us by Christ and the death he died on the cross. What might it look like to slow down and press in to God's restorative promises, both for you and for our world? What might it look like to have our hope in the redemption of our lives and in our surroundings rekindled over these next three weeks? It's understandable that we have favorite and least favorite books of the Bible. But we must never pit one of God's promises against another. The peace which is on the horizon is greater than anything we could ask for or imagine. But this peace is costly. It cost the Father his one and only son. It cost Jesus his very life. And it deserves a weighty response from us. It should never be taken for granted. Jesus will return to bring the full fruit of this peace into every nook and cranny of the world. But before we enjoy his peace, justice must be rendered on behalf of all those who have been maligned, taken advantage of. And the wicked will be punished. Let us cry out for mercy from Jesus today. In all the areas of our lives that do not reflect his kingdom, let us confess those and await his restoration. Let us live lives that by his grace are aligned towards this vision of peace. In other words, let us act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, all of it, even the parts that we don't love to read. We thank you that you give them to us because it shows your love for us. Uh, A loving parent warns his children. Lord, we ask that you would um, free us, that you would restore us, that you would help us to be the kinds of people who don't take lightly these warnings. To be the kind of people who cry out to you now, saying, come, Lord Jesus, into my life that it might reflect your vision of the good life. And help me, Lord Jesus, to partner with you to bring that about here and now in the small, seemingly insignificant way that I can as I await the fullness to come with your return. Lord, we need your help to do that, to do that with sincerity. We know that you are more than willing. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.